Amen. Please take your seats. If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God uh, to the book of Ruth and chapter 2. The Word of God open. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you're a very great God and a very great King above all gods. In your hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are yours also. The sea is yours, for it was you who made it, and your hands formed the dry land. And you have established your throne in the heavens, O God. Your sovereignty rules over all. You have made all for yourself, even the wicked, for the day of destruction. You look down from heaven. You see all of the sons of men. You fashion all of our hearts. Your eyelids test the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence your soul hates. Upon the wicked you will rain fire and brimstone, and a burning wind will be the portion of our cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold your face. And this evening, O oh God, we come, daring not trust any, trusting in any uprightness in our own hearts, we are not the man who has walked uprightly, worked righteousness, and spoken the truth in our heart. We have not sworn to our own hurt. We have taken up a reproach against our neighbor, O God, and deserve to be pushed off the mountain of your presence. But we stand, O God, in the name of your Son, the bright morning star, the fairest among ten thousand, the altogether righteous one the darling of heaven, you can say, my food and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me. One who longs to gather us as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. And we come this evening, O God, willing in the day of your power to rest under his arms and to pray, O Lord, that you would draw near and speak to us. We pray for each member of the congregation this evening, O Lord, that you would deal with us according to your needs, our needs, and draw us close to you, Father. Rebuke the pride, comfort the downcast and the downtrodden. Lift up those who are bowed down, O Lord, and where sin has abounded in all of our hearts, let your grace much more abound. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Word of God, Ruth chapter 2. Please take heed how you hear. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from the Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this, and the servants who was in charge of the reapers 
answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what, she, what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles of her and leave it up for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, What did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother in law. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder this evening, have you ever hit rock bottom? And there's a saying, and I forget where I first heard this, and I think you've heard me say it before, but you don't hit rock, you don't hit rock bottom when you hit the bottom. You hit rock bottom when you stop bouncing. And from Naomi's perspective, she's a woman who's just about stopped bouncing. She is down, and while she may not as yet be out for the count, she is quite sure, for her at least, there ain't no getting back up again. 
Last week, I noted that Naomi was a bitter woman, and I think by her own admission, she is. Remember, she said, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasantness, but call me Mara, which means bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and I came back empty. There you have it. She's bitter. With that said, however, and a dear widow lady this afternoon kindly um, took me to task over lunch and uh, reminded me that Naomi's lot was pretty hard. This lady is no longer a widow, of course. She's married now um, to one of our elders. But she said to me, you know, when I lost my first husband when I was 49, it was, uh, it was just a, a monumental shock. Uh, she could barely describe the enormity of the pain and the agony of having her first husband ripped away from her, like losing half of yourself. And Naomi, of course, has lost much more than half of herself. She's lost her husband and her first son and her second son, which makes all of her sons. And she feels as if, I think, she's lost all of herself. She's quite literally got nothing left. And by nothing, I mean nothing, nothing. She has absolutely no hope. And we find her in the last chapter on her way back home at the end of the chapter, and evidently she's got no one back home to take care of her. She's got no, at least, immediate extended family. Boaz is loosely connected to Elimelech, but um, Naomi isn't aware of Boaz, isn't thinking about Boaz, isn't connecting the dots to Boaz, and there's no social or state welfare program to act as a safety net beneath her. To be sure, at harvest time, God did require Israel to leave the edges of the field ungleaned for the poor. But Israel, God also required Israel, you remember, to take every 50th year and spend it in Jubilee and release all of the debts and everything. And Israel never once did that. There's no record in all the Scripture that Israel ever once celebrated a year of Jubilee. It's expensive for giving all those mortgages and all that student debt as well. And Israel didn't want to do that. And so, um, um, so if they didn't celebrate the year of Jubilee, it wouldn't be too hard to imagine that at least many, or if not some farmers certainly, would be a little hesitant to leave all that good picking at the end of the field. So there's no guarantee whatsoever for Naomi. And then also, this is the end of the famine as well. And so you could easily imagine the farmers saying, well, you know, it's a bit tight at the moment. We've got no, 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 not much seed for next year. And we don't know what the harvest is going to be like next year. So we've got to save all we can. And so there'll be a lot of pressure on the farmers not to leave any gleanings for strangers and widows, much less Naomi and Naomi and Ruth, who had soiled themselves by heading off to Moab, the untouchable land. Remember, a Moabite, um, even a Moabite child of a Jew, could not enter the temple for ten generations, God said in the Old Testament. And remember as well, these were the times of judges, not exactly high-picking for uh, godliness. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So I, I can't imagine too many of the farmers looking back um, with their WWYD bracelet, what would Yahweh do uh, in the instructions in Deuteronomy for harvest time? So every night, Naomi went back to the tent without her sons and to a bed without her husband. No strong arms to wrap themselves around her, no tender lips to kiss her good night on her forehead and to assure her that everything would be okay. She is completely and utterly 
destitute, and as we said last week, as a measure of her hopelessness, she tries to dissuade Ruth and Orpah from going to the promised land. It'll be like a backslidden Christian coming back to the church with two pagan friends and saying to them, listen, don't you come here. Go back to the world. She's no hope. Almost called last week's sermon, The Woman Who Almost Wrecked Christmas. But you remember, as we said, she's not completely destitute. The Almighty is at work in her life, and she knows that. But she can only see one side of the thing, you remember. Um, I went out full. He brought me back empty. She's heard his word of rebuke, chapter 121. Um, the Lord, um, 22, sorry, the, the 21, the Lord has testified against me. Somehow the word of God had come up on her conscience and, and convicted her that she was wrong to go to Moab. And as far as she's concerned, the hand of God has gone out against her again and again and again at the cemetery. You remember she said that in verse 13, chapter 1. Um, no, my Lord, it's ex- no, no, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. So, in her mind, God's out to get her, and everything is dark, everything is empty, and everything is bitter. She's at rock bottom. But if you remember, in our first sermon, and I forgot to say it last week, which would have been the climax of the sermon, but it escaped me. Um, the word Almighty in the Bible, El Shaddai, doesn't just describe, describe God's raw power in that God can do anything He wants to, but actually describes God's beneficent power toward His people, that He will do anything you need Him to in order to defend you, in order to protect you, and in order to bring you back home. And you'll see that just a couple of verses that I should have pointed to you last week. If you, um, if you turn in Genesis 17, for example, you get this sense of the kindly, almighty power of God toward His people. And just we'll look at three verses quickly. Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. The almighty power of God here is seen as not pulling Abraham down, but building Abraham up, right? I'll go forward to chapter 35, verse 11. just before Rachel dies. God said to, Abraham, to, to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. God's promising Jacob he can do the impossible, and to give Jacob confidence, he reminds Jacob of his name, I'm God Almighty. We'll turn forward um, to Job 8, and I inadvertently lied. There actually are four verses, I apologize. But Job 8, starting at 
Sorry, I didn't lie. I misspoke. Uh, Job 8, verses 1 to 7. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? This is not Bildad's finest moment. He's calling Job a windbag, you understand. But um, there is truth in what he's saying. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. But if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore you your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Now, there's a lot of um, confused theology here. You see, Bildad is thinking that God has killed Job's children because they sinned. And of course, that's not, there's not a direct connection there at all. There was, there was no specific sin that brought these children's death. But he is, he is referring, he is building his theology on the conviction that the Almighty is a God who uses strength for, for the good of people who turn to Him. As Naomi was doing here, at least in a discouraged way, in Ruth by going back to the promised land. And then lastly, if you turn forward to Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And the Psalm 91 is an amazing Psalm. It, it, it basically promises this, this huge deliverance. The, the Messiah, it's a psalm for Messiah. It's, it's spoken of in the singular. It's given to a singular man who's the Messiah. That doesn't mean you can't sing it, of course, because you sing the psalms in the Messiah. So, it's true of Jesus. It's true of you. His resurrection is your resurrection. His death is your death. His God is your God. His life is your, is your life. And all of the promises God makes to him, he makes to you. And all of the promises of God are yea and amen to you in him, Paul says, right? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And it all flows from who God is. He's most high. You can't get above Him. And He's most mighty, almighty. You can't overpower Him. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. When, when people are out to trap you, the fowler, He will deliver you. And when pestilence is about to get you, he will deliver you. One is an intentional threat, the fowler, the, the trapper. And one is an invisible threat, the pestilence. It's, an, it's a, a merism covering all of disaster. The seen and the unseen. The intentional and the unintentional. And God's almighty power protects Messiah and his people from it all. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the hour that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. More merisms, night and day, seen unseen. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Why? Because the Almighty is your God, right? So back to Ruth. So when Ruth speaks of the El Shaddai, she thinks about it, the empty. He's made me empty. But of course, the writer of Ruth wants you to see that she's speaking better than she knew. I went out full, yes, and he did empty me, yes, but he also brought me back home. He wants you to see the warmer and the kinder side to God's dealings. And of course, she's not completely alone. Ruth is with her. And in chapter 2, 
Ruth begins to come into center stage. Ruth, you remember, is the pagan girl who against all hope dared to hope in God. Notwithstanding the train wreck of Naomi's life, Orpah's life, and her life, Ruth committed herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God. That's an amazing thing. Remember, Naomi tried to discourage her. Go back to Moab. There's no hope for you in Bethlehem. Naomi is utterly lost in despair. She saw only reasons for the two girls to turn back. Wherever Naomi looked, she saw darkness and no light. She looked back and she saw guilt. I've messed it up. My sin. We shouldn't have gone to Moab. I told Elimelech, maybe, or maybe she wanted to go. We don't know. But she was dragged to Moab, and her life's a nightmare. She looks forward, and there's no hope. She can't see Boaz. She sees despair, hopelessness. And she looks out at the present, and she only sees emptiness, darkness, and bitterness. And Orpah, reluctantly, but probably relievedly, says, you're right, I'm going back to Moab. But Ruth trusts herself to Yahweh's God. So simple the act, but what, an, what a momentous moment. I, I wonder, did Ruth feel the earth shake at that moment and the universe change color? Because it did. Imagine, imagine she didn't. She said, your God will be my God. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die, I will die. And may God do to me and more also if anything separates me from you. Like the membership body this morning, she felt the need to seal her commitment to her her um, mother-in-law with a promise. Love wasn't enough. She had to bring the promise to wind itself round her love and bind her to him or to her and to God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever cast yourself at the feet of Naomi's God and Ruth's God and your father's God and cry out, Lord, take me. Lord, save me. Lord, have me to the core of my being. Lord, forgive me. Have you ever done that? And you might feel nothing. You might not feel anything. You might not feel the heavens open and the, the angels sing the hallelujah chorus, but everything changes in that moment. And you get a little picture of that. The, the writer tells you that here in chapter 2, as through Boaz and others, we, 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 we actually discover that for, for Ruth at least, everything changed. At that moment, Ruth had done what Israel had refused to do. She'd come to shelter under the shadow of Yahweh's wings. Remember, Jesus said, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Israel didn't do that, but Ruth did. We see that there um, in verse 12, whenever Boaz says, the Lord repay you for what you have, have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And Boaz said that after he repeats to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And he, and he said to Ruth, what you might not know is, it's not so much that you've committed yourself to God, but that God now has committed himself to you and has taken you under the shadow of his wings, and you're safe now, and you're safe forever. And even more, God is committed. Come hell or high water, in life and in death, He will never cease to show kindness to you. And we, we hear that at the end of the passage, as Naomi's heart begins to lift up, 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, comma, now, this next bit is not speaking about Boaz, it's speaking about Yahweh. May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That suddenly, Naomi sees more in God than bitterness. She sees kindness, a stubborn kindness that is kind not just to her and to Ruth, but a God who is kind to her dead husband, Elimelech, who had forsaken God and walked away from God and died in the pagan land, and yet God hadn't forsaken Elimelech. The story is not so much God providing a male heir for Ruth, which He does. The story of Ruth is actually God providing a male heir for Elimelech, who's as dead as dead can be, and childless now too, at the beginning of the story, but not at the end of the story. And this God, whose kindness was committed to Elimelech, is a God whose kindness is also then committed to Ruth and Naomi as they shelter under His wings. And really, chapter 2 of Naomi is all about that kindness. How does this loving kindness, this chesed, this steadfast love of God work? And again, because we're Presbyterians, there are three points, but they don't all begin with P. We see in this chapter God's kindness working kindly and quietly behind the scenes. And you see that in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan, clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, interestingly, the worthy man there is Chaish um, Chayil which is almost the same at the end of the book of Proverbs, and I'm indebted to Kyle for pointing this out to me. At the end of the book of Proverbs, the excellent wife is called Chaishat Chayail, which is the excellent wife who can find, right? And actually, in the next chapter, through the next week's sermon, but in the next chapter, um, Ruth is called Chaishat Chayil, the excellent wife, an excellent woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, Guess which book comes after Proverbs? Ruth. Right? They have a different order than us. So the book of Proverbs ends with the excellent wife, which remember, boys, is the whole point that if you want to, mar- if you want to be a, a wise man, who you choose to marry is, matters a very great deal indeed. And you think, well, who's an excellent wife? And the book of Ruth sets her before you on a golden platter. Ruth, a Moabite. You came to take refuge under the shadow of the Almighty. What's an excellent man look like? <laughs> a good man who can find, a uh, famous writer once asked in an essay, um, Boaz. He's the Chaisha Chayil, the excellent man, a worthy man, an excellent man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, you've got to remember, Ruth and Naomi don't know that yet. If you need to, if we often forget that in the Bible. They have no idea. Boaz, I don't, I don't, think, Elimel, I don't think Naomi actually is even thinking that Boaz is on the planet. But the writer lets you know, just as a, at the start of the message, that Naomi is no hope. 
and Ruth hasn't got much more hope in their own sense. But what we think is happening, what, what they think is happening, and what God is actually doing are very different things. Behind the scenes, God is at work, and Boaz is standing ready in the wings, but nobody knows it yet except God and you. And that should encourage you this evening. Maybe you're in a mess right now, and you don't know how God's going to deliver you. That doesn't mean God doesn't know how He is going to deliver you. And we often judge God by what we think can happen or by what we think will happen. But the ways of God are much better than our hopes and fears. And that should lend an optimism to your faith. Remember Donald Rumsfeld, he spoke about those unknowns. People mocked him, that was quite wise. You've got known unknowns, things you know you don't know. And you've got no unknowns, things you know you do know. You also have unknown unknowns, things you don't know that you don't know. We never thought that, that Saudis would learn to fly in Florida and then crash those planes they learned to fly into the Trade Center. We didn't, know, we didn't even think that was a possibility, right? Unknown unknowns. And we, we worship a God who has even the unknown unknowns in, in His hands. And with Yahweh, the God of Naomi and Ruth, the unknowns the unknown unknowns of Yahweh, the things we don't know that God is yet to do, right? The unknown unknowns are always kindly unknowns when it comes to His people. They're always good. So, God's at work behind the scenes in her life. And He's at work behind the scenes when she just happens to meet Him. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Interestingly, Naomi doesn't go with her. Now, she's not a complete paraplegic. She was able to walk back to Bethlehem from, from, from um, Moab. So she's got some strength in her. So I wonder why Naomi didn't go out to work. Maybe Naomi's just so discouraged she can't even bear the thought of putting one more foot past the other. I don't know, but she stays at home and sends Ruth out to work by herself. And yet God still hasn't forgotten her. How vast the difference, Christian, between how you feel and what's really going on. So Ruth set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And as the, I think as the King James says, as her hap was, as she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. She just happened to come to the field of Boaz at the very moment Boaz comes to the field. Calvin said, God so attends to the regulation of individual events, and they all so proceed from His set plan that nothing takes place by chance. Nothing. 
There are no maverick molecules, as Sproul famously said. He really does have the whole world in his hands. Luck is a phrase that's foreign, should be foreign anyway at least, to Christian vocabulary. All creatures, actions, and things from the least even to the greatest fall out according to His most holy, wise providence. And yet, um, the, the confession of faith speaks of contingencies, con- contingent events. And a contingent event is an event that could have turned out different ways, humanly speaking. Like when you throw a dice, it is unpredictable. I mean, if you could, if you could, if you could know the exact um, position and inclination of the dice when you threw it, and you, could, you knew how much rotational energy you gave to it, and how much forward motion you uh, give it, and its momentum, and the gravitational coefficient, and probably the friction of the table it lands on, all that kind of stuff, you could predict exactly which side of the dice would come up. But we, can't, we didn't know all that. And we throw a dice, and anything could happen into our minds. And, and the confession of faith says, that, that's true. God's providence doesn't take that away. Like when, when Ruth went out, she could have gone to any number of fields, into the, to the part of any number of fields. And she could have walked through Boaz's field earlier in the morning or later in the day, and she might have missed Boaz. All of that is true. Contingent, apparently random events are real. And yet, while God is not mentioned here, it is, it is, it is clear the silent screams at you that it was the hand of God that moved um, Ruth to this particular part of this particular field at this particular time of the day to meet this particular man. Behind the scenes, God's at work. And then, behind the scenes, God's at work in Boaz's response. As Boaz comes, he blesses his weepers, they bless him back again, and he asks, whose young woman is this? And you can see the devil in the background going, this is not the woman you're looking for. This is not the woman you're looking for. <laughs> but it doesn't work. He hasn't got that. He hasn't got the mojo. He hasn't got the force. And God's going, no, no, look at her and wonder in your mind who this woman is. I wonder who this woman is. Okay. And then he asks, ask them. They'll know. The hand of God. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz speaks to Ruth. And again, the hand of God, as God inclines Boaz's heart toward her. I mean, he could have come to the field in a bad mood. He could have had a fight with, with one of his servants back in the house. A thousand things could have happened. He could have had a flat tire in his cart. Who knows? He could have been in a bad, stinking mood and wouldn't have had a thought to answer or speak to Ruth. But he came to the, to the field cheerful, chirpy, full of the joy of the Lord, blessing them. They bless him. He sees her, and his heart's inclined to her. That's all the hand of God. The heart of the hand of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he will, even as a water course. And all of His kindness and graciousness to her, giving her water 
warning the young men not to touch her, telling her to stay in that field, not to go to another field. All of that is the mercy of God coming to Ruth. And even the fact that Boaz knew who Ruth was, how did Boaz knew who Ruth was? Well, he was at Starbucks one day waiting for his frappuccino double whatever latte, and the person next to him in the, in the line was talking to two women talking, and then they were talking about this Moabitess. Who's she? Ruth. Oh, who's Ruth? Oh, she's married to… Oh, I remember them. And the, the pennies dropped, but that, 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 the fact he even, he even heard about Ruth, all of that was God's providence. Now, Ruth knew none of that, of course. Ruth is just being guided by the unseen hand of providence. But could you imagine if Ruth had known that that day she had to happen upon just the right field at just the right time to meet just the right man? And then what if that man, like, doesn't know who I am, and maybe I won't meet him, and maybe he'll be in a bad mood, and all those things. Like, we, we have this capacity to doubt I mean, for example, I went to, I went to, to junior grade school, um, went from seven to 11 years of age, and my wife, Catherine, actually lived across the road from that school at that time. Now, if I'd been told then, your wife is going to live across the road in Cabin Hill Park, I'd have stressed out. I thought, how am I going to meet her? And I'm really worried about it. What if I don't meet her? And I didn't meet her for years later, but I'd have been stressed out. How am I going to? I, 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 there's just too much variables, and I can't control it all. It's a disaster. And the, the, the capacity for stress. Even whenever you were conceived, without going into too many details, there was a 3.5 million to one chance against you being born. But half of you was a very strong swimmer. Because you imagine if you, if you, had, if you had consciousness before that moment, watching that race and thinking, oh, <laughs> it'd be ter- terribly stressful. But yet God in His sovereign providence ordered all of the events of human history that you and only you be born that evening. But that doesn't stop us having capacity to worry about tomorrow. And behind all of this, such worry on Ruth's part, had she known, would have been completely pointless because she finds herself effortlessly right in the middle of God's plan, as you and I do as well. believer can say, Thou art my God, my times are in thy hand. I love the way John Ryland expressed that in the 19th century, 1825 or so. He said, Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, all my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. He that formed me in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my time shall ever be ordered by thy wise decree. Times of sickness, times of health. Times of penury, poverty. Times of wealth. Times of trial and of grief. Times of triumph and relief. Times the tempter's power to prove. Times the taste to taste a Savior's love. All must come and last and end as shall please my heavenly friend. Plagues and death around me fly till he bids I cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit till the God of love sees fit. That's the God you worship this evening, Christian. That's the God of Ruth, the God of Naomi. And they couldn't see it then. 
especially Naomi. But that didn't, take, that didn't change the fact that God is God. And while heaven and earth stand and forever and ever and ever afterwards, God cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is at work behind the scenes. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And that was the longest point. Two other things quickly to say. First of all, we see also God's kindness as Ruth gets to work. God's at work behind the scenes, but Ruth also gets to work. Naomi, she stays at home, discouraged, but Ruth steps out with a plucky optimism. That's often the way with people of faith. We're like weebles. Weebles, we had them in the UK, at least anyway. These little weighted, round, egg-shaped men. And there's no arms or legs, just a face and a hat or hair, and a round bottom. And you could push them down, but you couldn't keep them down because they kept on popping back up again, right? And there's a sense that people of faith are like that. They're held and fed by an invisible grace that holds them up even when they're pushed down again and again and again. And Ruth, for some reason that is never explained in the text, she found herself with this plucky faith of getting up and going out to the fields. She didn't know Boaz was there, didn't even know he was there to be found. But she went out to work. She went out to look. Now remember, this is not a case of God helps those who help themselves. I'm not saying that. But I am kind of saying, he who dares wins. Because and don't forget, we've been told already that God's at work behind the scenes because God's got Boaz waiting in the wings, right? But yet, not knowing that, Ruth goes out to work. And it's a great example, I think, of um, not that God helps those who help themselves, but He does bless us as we work in faith. I've had lunch this afternoon with a young couple um, visiting the church, and um, the husband said, you know, my, my mother told me, because <laughs> she told him, don't waste dating till you, go to, till, till you can marry. And then once he, once he was at a marriageable age, she was going, hurry up, find a wife. And he goes, well, how am I going to do that? And he, she said, go to a target-rich environment. Um, and... Um, um, you know, there's a sense, there's truth in that, right? You want to find a good wife or a good husband, go to where good husbands and good, men, good women can be found. I think we see that principle as Naomi goes to work. And lastly this evening, I want you to see, we see God's kindness in the little provisions of daily bread. As God provides for her, as she goes and, and gleans around this field as Boaz stacks the cards in her favor by leaving extra bundles of bread or bundles of wheat around the um, uh, field edge to make it easy for her. But she works all day from morning, only a little break, is working her fingers to the bone. And she comes home with an ephah of grain. Now, an ephah of grain might not sound like much, but that's probably in the region of 50 pounds worth of grain. That's, that's about as much as you could carry. That's like a bumper size of dog food you buy in Costco. A lot of, lot of, it's a lot of grain, right? And that doesn't seem like much to us because we can go to the grocery store and buy food and we have, you know, three meals a day and then snacks in between. And it's, it's um, hunger is not something we live with at the moment, at least anyway, for most of us. 
And if you're like me, you could do an awful, some of you could do an awful lot more hunger, and I certainly can. My cardiologist told me I've got to lose 30 pounds. So we're working, not very successfully, but we are working. Um, you know, um, she brings home 50 pounds of grain after a day's work, and it's a feast. That's God. At work behind the scenes. At work through our faith. And at work as He feeds us. And it's a beautiful thing, even just that as an aside, the fact that God commanded the gleanings. God never commanded Israel just to give food to the poor. There's a, a principle in the Bible, if any man will not work, he shall not eat. And there's a nobility that comes from working and working to provide for yourself, and yet we pray for our daily bread, and yet we work for our daily bread. And so there's a beautiful balance there, as the Latin would say, ora et labora, work and pray. And yet, as you stand back from this story, did you notice how every time Boaz is mentioned, He's mentioned side by side with Elimelech. Verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And then in verse 3, She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Why is he doing that? Why are you constantly being reminded of Elimelech? Remember, Elimelech, what does his name mean? My God is King. The very thing that, that Naomi doubted in the first chapter and, and stressed about in one sense, we see here the kindly, kingly hand of God providing for Elimelech quietly behind the scenes. And yet, while God does rule the universe indeed, His kingdom is not always obvious. What's that hymn we sing at Christmas time? O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together, proclaim thy holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And maybe you're in a situation in life when all you can see is darkness and emptiness and bitterness, and life's been hard, for some of you, unbearably hard. Burdens I can't imagine carrying. And yet, the writer to Ruth whispers in your ear, Eli Melech, my God is king. And he works behind the scenes. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And you might not see him working. You might not hear him working. 
you might not feel him working. You might be like Job. He acts ahead of me. I cannot see him. He acts on the left. I cannot behold him. He turns on the right. I cannot find him. But yet he knows the way that you take. And when he has tried you, he will bring you forth as gold. God was king then, and he's king now, and he shall be king forever. And whatever you feel, you can trust him. And when you trust him, even when you can't feel him, sometimes the best thing you can do is get up off your backside and go out and glean some wheat. Do the next right thing and trust God. He'll not let you down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the glory of your kingdom, the beauty of your Son, and the, and the simple majesty of your Scriptures, these stories, O God, of old, that help us make sense of our stories today. And I pray for my flock, O God, many of whom carrying immeasurable burdens with cancer and bereavement and all manner of problems littering their path fore and aft and all around. And we pray this evening, O Lord, that you would draw near to them and whisper in their ear, don't be frightened. I am with you. As I was with Ruth, I am with you. I have loved you once. I will love you always, and I will never let you go. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.